Hey guys, just before we jump into the episode, today we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and we extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. This episode is brought to you by the Site Collaborative, our online psychology clinic bringing good quality, accessible therapy to you in the comfort of your own home. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we are talking all things people-pleasing and perfectionism. When was the last time you said no? Kat and I are going to dive into the causes, signs, and some tips to help you escape the trap of people-pleasing and perfectionism. That was so good. What a beautiful intro. Just right off the top of my head. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. My name is Kat. I am a registered psychologist. And I'm Amy, a registered psychotherapist. Okay, so jumping into today's episode, today we are talking all things perfectionism and people-pleasing behaviours. As Ames was saying, this is something that I think is really common for so many people and it is something that has come up quite a lot in our inbox as people just wanting to hear a little bit more about it. So Ames, let's kick it off. Talk to me a little bit more about what perfectionism is and what people-pleasing behaviours are. Okay, so people-pleasing is the act of putting others' needs above your own and is typically an adaptive coping mechanism. It is compulsive and automatic concern for the needs of others while ignoring your own. So this compulsive and rigid identification with duty, role and responsibility rather than needs of self and the suppression of healthy anger too, which can sometimes be a major risk factor for illness because it does suppress our immune system and our nervous system as well, activate our nervous system rather. So people-pleasing usually comes from parent-pleasing. So to maintain attachment with inconsistently available primary caregivers, often a parent-pleaser child takes on a caregiving role towards their own parents as typically they are stressed or overwhelmed. So this child may feel like very inconsistent connection warm and loving one minute, cold and distant the next. So the child becomes very hypervigilant to the primary caregiver's state and they learn to track moods, you know, want to make their parents happy, squash their own needs and emotions and be very, very good to essentially not rock the boat. And so that is a a pattern that can really follow into adulthood when we learn that certain traits or perceptions of self are valued more than others we would tend to want to uh, suppress or, or deny other parts of self that we learn aren't valued that don't get us that validation acceptance and approval uh, that we are seeking mm, love that and so what would people pleasing look like in adulthood so in adulthood people pleasing can look like feeling guilty, fear of saying no, like I said, suppressing our emotions, especially anger. Oftentimes there is a lot of guilt and shame around getting angry or feeling angry uh, at, at other people. And sometimes that is, again, based on our childhood experiences. If anger has kind of felt like a bit of an ugly or unsafe emotion, 
And it's the suppression of needs as well. It can, in adulthood too, look a little bit like being preoccupied around what others think and feel, you know, kind of, again, wearing that mask or showing different parts of self that we have learnt are more valuable or uh, that get us that acceptance, approval and validation to fit in or please others. It might be difficulty setting and maintaining boundaries. Uh, For some people that really struggle with boundaries, it might feel mean to set boundaries or, or tell people no. It does look like essentially starving for the approval and validation from others because it is based so much around our neglected attachment needs. So uh, attachment is like hunger and when we don't have those needs met, we starve, we crave them. It can look like feeling stuck in relationships that aren't reciprocal because people-pleasing really, really stems from fear of rejection and abandonment. So oftentimes, essentially, I guess simplistically speaking, it might be better to be with someone than no one at all. And also, I I guess oftentimes, people pleasers tend to have really low self-esteem and because they neglect their own needs, uh, again, they they might be more prone to staying in relationships that don't serve them. People pleasing is really common, I guess, shares a lot with codependency as well. Um, So that is something that we might see looking at adult relationships and also that anxious, ambivalent attachment style. So there's usually a strong need for control, uh, over-apologising, feeling very on edge and tense a lot of the time from that hypervigilance of having to read people's emotions, what mood are people in, uh, you know, do they like me, have I pleased them, am I good enough, am I worthy, that kind of thing. High standards of performance and perfectionism. So there, there is a big crossover with perfectionism and people-pleasing. Difficulty asking for what you need really wanting to avoid conflict like the plague (laughs) and also feeling quite resentful of of constantly giving to others as well and that underlying you know yearning that we just wish others would would care for us in the same way that we care for them oftentimes it is this feeling of struggling to be seen by others because we are constantly focusing on people and the world around us you know no one sees the authentic self and it can lead to feelings of being misunderstood alone and empty you know literally like no one sees me and then again that perpetuating the cycle of chasing Mm. to be seen by others I think also with people pleasing it's there's an interesting paradox that arises because you mentioned that fear of feeling angry or fear of expressing anger as it's unsafe But then also on the other end of it, you have internalized resentment and frustration. And that can be really difficult to grapple with. I think people who do people please have this conflict within themselves of a, you know, I I shouldn't express anger. I shouldn't be feeling angry versus I'm so frustrated that this person hasn't reciprocated what I would do for them, or this hasn't turned out the way that I'd hoped, or I'm going above and beyond. Why can't they read my mind that I'm busy? Like, I, I think that I've noticed that when working through people-pleasing, that there is this almost inner conflict and paradox of people-pleasing that revolves around anger and resentment because I think people-pleasers are left with this feeling of frustration but their inability to express it or to feel safe to do so. 
really impacts on, on their well-being and that can often come through as, you know, anxiety, depression, um, you know, really dysfunctional coping mechanisms. So, yeah, it's an interesting, you know, personality trait. And, yeah, I, I think, Ames, you summed it up really well. Fear of failure, fear of rejection seems to be the stem of people-pleasing and that often it really is, you know, characterised by neglecting self. There isn't any almost standard for the way that people pleasers treat themselves it seems to be this self-sacrificial behavior of putting others first as modeled in childhood or as something that they've learned to do and yeah it's a really difficult thing because people pleasers come across I find as really lovely really genuine personality types and so when you meet a people pleaser and I'm self-confessed people pleaser myself you think wow like this person like really is so helpful and so lovely and they're, you know, just doing everything. And I think that that reinforcement of, oh, you're so nice or you're so kind or thank you so much for doing that, you didn't have to do that, kind of ties into that positive reinforcement, right? Like people pleasers are continually reinforced for disrespecting their own boundaries. So it makes sense that this behavior perpetuates even though long-term it's not helpful. So it's difficult because of the reinforcement. You know, people pleasers do want to feel accepted and, you know, included. And that builds up the resentment because it's like, well, yeah, I can happy to do it once or twice, but now there's an expectation. Maybe I should keep doing that. Maybe I should keep pleasing them. That feels really good to please someone and to help someone. But then it kind of feeds into this negative cycle, right? Of now I kind of have set a standard and I want to keep on pleasing someone. And that leads to that resentment and often burnout and just frustration, uh, anxiety, all of those things can manifest from people-pleasing that hasn't been intervened with. Also, one thing I've noticed pop up is just people-pleasers may not be present in their life. It may feel like you're on autopilot because you're driven by this internal need to please others. So when you neglect yourself and your own needs, you don't really tune into what you really want to do. You don't really, you're not really mindful and in the moment and really there seems to be a bit of a disconnect. And I think with that disconnect comes lack of enjoyment of the activities that you usually, like you don't put yourself first. So you, you know, wouldn't sit down in front of the TV and really enjoy it. You know, you may not have any hobbies. You may be too busy putting other people first. And yeah, and that can be really difficult to sit with, this disconnect from yourself and really lead to a lot of these symptoms that we've spoken about already. So yeah, it's something that is a really difficult thing to work through, people pleasing, because it is really ingrained, usually since childhood. And then that can be really difficult to work through as an adult. Yeah, yeah. And just going back to that frustration you mentioned and disconnection, Because we have learnt to abandon ourselves in order to meet those attachment needs, essentially that's what people-pleasing is. Uh, Of course, there is that frustration around, well, I don't actually know how I feel or what I need because I suppress who I am, I suppress my authenticity and I suppress my awareness of my gut feelings so that I am not in conflict with my caregiver because that would threaten my attachment and that's what I need to survive. And so the problem as adults is that a lot of our behaviours are still coming out of that need to attach. So we're still, we're still behaving essentially like little children who need to attach and be liked and that need for approval at the expense of our authenticity. 
So of course there is this, essentially it's a, a very hyper-aroused nervous system and it is that strategy for coping with lack of security in relationship and the main function is driven by fear, fear that you won't love me, fear that I will be alone. As human beings, one of the most you know basic kind of primary function we are we are relational beings so uh, of course it, it is essential that that we have those attachment needs met and yeah just going back to what you're saying Kat around feeling like we're on autopilot I think that speaks a lot to that disconnection from self because essentially that that is the learnt adaptive coping strategy and I think that's really important to, to name it as that. It's not necessarily a trait, although some personalities do scale higher on people-pleasing and perfectionism, but this is a learnt automatic coping strategy. Sometimes it is called fawning. There have recently been a lot of literature around fight, flight, freeze, and then a fourth trauma response of fawning. There was a therapist named Pete Walker who said fawning is the use of people pleasing to diffuse conflict, feel more secure in relationships, and earn the approval of others as a way of creating safety in our connections with others by essentially mirroring the imagined expectations and desires of other people. And I think that's really important too because that's similar to what you're saying, Kat, as well, is is that it's we are constantly anticipating what we think other people uh, are, are, you know, wanting to perceive in us and that's the self that we are putting forward is what are others perceiving me to be and what do I need to be to get approved, accepted, validated, liked, because usually it stems from having a very conditional type of love in childhood. And so it's that, okay, because love is conditional, I need to function at a really high standard. Uh, I need to be good. I need to be kind. Yeah. I need to please the other, you know, and that real inability to say no and that continual pressure to do things to gain approval and acceptance of others is highly stress inducing. So then that's the cycle. And often this stress is so unconscious. So um, absolutely that disconnect from self, we, we lose the awareness of all our gut instincts and our own emotions and needs. And, and so that's another element of people pleasing and perfectionism too, is the increase of chronic and toxic stress mm. and the impacts that has on our physical health. Mm. You're, and it makes sense that if you're if you're attaching your value and your self-worth to others' approval, of course, you'll consistently feel stressed and really on alert and overwhelmed because it's really difficult to gain approval from everyone. In fact, it's almost impossible. So, of course, you're stuck in this hyper-aroused state because you're, you're consistently trying to please everyone around you. And even if temporarily you get some approval or acceptance from someone, say your boss or your partner, it, it's only temporary, you know, th- this will continue to perpetuate like, oh, great, I got reinforced, I'm doing a good job, I'm going to keep on doing this behaviour. I mean, it's a very fundamental of behaviour development is if it's reinforced, you will continue to do it, right? So I think being stuck in this hyper-aroused state is something that is so common as a people pleaser because you will never ever please everybody and and that's really tough to hear but it's also something that's really true and I think when working through people pleasing and diffusing this behavior 
really looking at this from a very rational perspective because we develop these traits in childhood and as a child we have very black and white thinking we are very egotistical and we've made a connection perhaps that when we do a good job mummy and daddy love me more or the teacher's really proud of me as a child you notice that I need to keep pleasing people in order for them to love me or accept me right and it it may have an assumption underneath or a core belief underneath of I need to succeed in order to feel loved. And I think when we work through with clients about this, it's like, well, let's look at is is this really true? You know, where did you learn this? Who told you that? And understanding that this is an adaptive behavior. It's not, you're not silly or you're not, you know, flawed for thinking like this. I think as a child, of course, of course, this is your um, learned behavior. But sometimes when when working through people-pleasing can be helpful to understand where it's come from, the function it's served and whether it's really true. Speaking of going back to roots, something that I work a lot around with clients is uh, attachment in relation to childhood. So we speak a lot about attachment and I think, again, um, it it really is becoming quite popular. Uh, I've I've noticed an increase in TikTok videos on attachment and social media, uh, Instagram uh, information around attachment and Sometimes I think it's kind of misunderstood as almost another label. A lot of people kind of confuse it with almost like having a love language. And I'm very passionate about psychoeducation around attachment and our attachment systems because attachment is a biological system. It's not a fluffy label that we give to say, you know, this is how you are in relationship. And I definitely have a lot of clients come to me and actually one thing that I picked up recently is I had a client say, oh, but that's just my attachment. You know, that's like, that's just my attachment style. Without really understanding, I guess, the significance or, or how attachment develops. And I think that's really important because attachment can be changed, but really understanding it as you know, the emotional and psychological needs of us as humans. So attachment is developed within relationships. Um, People with adverse childhood experience experience high levels of incidence with insecure or anxious attachment styles. And they're essentially our internal working models. So patterns of relating are internalized in how we relate to others. So really how safe we feel in the world and how safe we feel relating to others. You know, and if we don't have our attachment needs met, we will try and find them in other ways. Or if they are not met, we tend to just shut them down. So I guess just quickly, there are actually four types of attachment styles. So we have type A, which is insecure or avoidant, which is that the child actually learns to shut down or soothe their own needs and they are more likely to be independent. Think of it as having like a one-person psychological system. They appear quite strong and not showing much, I guess, emotion in the form of sadness or distress. And that's because they didn't have a reliable safe haven to come back to with their primary caregivers so they're just not expressing their emotional needs it's not that they're not there then we have type b which is secure we have a natural desire to think we all have secure attachments um, but it's actually quite rare so attachment needs are basically being met without any adaption is what a secure attachment is we have type c which is insecure or anxious ambivalent sometimes known as resistant and that's the inconsistency in primary caregiving and how our primary caregiver responds to the child 
Often the child will focus quite heavily on the caregiver. However, if needs are not met, they may actually start to reject the caregiver. And then we have a shift between being overly dependent and clingy uh, or angry and distressed. So it's a very come here, go away or hot and cold attachment style. And that is usually the attachment style we see with people pleasers or codependence. So then there's also a type D, which is a disorganized attachment, which is more of that severe uh, traumatized brain where it's those who are meant to protect me hurt me the most. So knowing that as an adult, the emotional bond that develops between adult partners is partly a function of the same motivational system, the attachment behavioral system that gives rise to the emotional bond to your partner from your caregiver. I hope that makes sense. So I, I really think having that that basis understanding of what our attachment system actually is as our internal working model is important. It's not just a you know fluffy subtype that we fit into. Uh, it's really related to our nervous system and our biology. So yeah, mm. sorry, <laughs> went on a tangent. I think I think no. that's really important yeah. to just note. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really important. And let's go into working through people pleasing. If you're someone who is listening to this and you're noticing that you may be saying yes to a lot of these traits that Ames and I have spoken about, as as I mentioned and as Ames mentioned, getting to the root of people pleasing, understanding what happened, understanding why you may have developed this, understanding as Ames was talking about, your attachment style will be really, really helpful in you know, working through people-pleasing because I think if you don't understand it, it'll be really, really hard to reduce it. I also think I feel like people-pleasers hate this word but boundaries, practising boundaries and feeling safe to do. So I think there seems to be some lack of safety associated with saying no or setting boundaries with people. And I think doing a lot of this in therapy can be helpful because, you know, it's allowing a safe space for you to practice setting boundaries and saying no to things. So I I think practicing boundary setting will be really, really helpful. And something I've found that has been quite conducive to reducing people-pleasing behaviors is, and Ames, I think we've spoken about this before, and I think it's stuck with me ever since, is when you're setting a soft boundary, even saying something like, I can't do that, or I, you know, I don't have time for that can be really anxiety provoking for anyone who's a people pleaser. So we start off with a much softer boundary, which is a little bit more realistic and people pleasers may find it a bit easier to do. And that's saying if you're, you know, asked to do something or if you're, for example, in a work sense, you want to please your boss or your colleague and they give you an extra task. It's just coming back to this line of let me think about it. Let me, you know, check my schedule and just see if I have capacity. And it can be, even that can be quite difficult, but leaving the door open for you to go and have space away to think about, you know, what you need to do will be really helpful because I think, you know, your natural instinct may be to say yes and to just almost, it's almost a way of reducing this anxiety that you get when someone asks you to do something. You know, you may feel some anxiety with saying no or even saying yes. And I think saying yes is such a quick way to get rid of that anxiety temporarily. But then in the long run, you're left with this resentment and frustration that you have to do this task. So I think boundaries can be a really, really helpful tool um, to start to work through this people-pleasing behaviour. Definitely. 
as you were saying, Kat, going back to the roots, so because fundamentally it has to do with whether our attachment needs or our emotional needs are being met or not, I guess the essence of trauma is is disconnection from ourselves. So trauma is oftentimes not the terrible, catastrophic things that happen to us, although those things do happen and we can certainly experience trauma from them. But trauma is what happens when we learn that we are alone in the world and we make ourselves needed to adapt. So the trauma is that very separation from body and emotions. So I guess to help people pleasing, it is how did we get separated and how do we reconnect to self? Um, So how do we reconnect you to you? And uh, therapy is definitely instrumental in that process, but I think awareness too. So even just developing that awareness, I think you make a really good point with what you're saying, Kat, that pausing to notice when we might be suppressing the self for other. So if someone asks us to do something, just pausing and, and giving ourselves a little bit of time to respond as Kat you're saying with a soft boundary I I think just pausing and starting to expand that observant part of self to notice can I actually do that do I actually have time to do that and you know what might be triggering uh, this urgency to say yes to something that I may not even want to do so because people pleasing has been an adaptive automatic coping strategy for so long we can't just simply start going from that to no, you know, I am my, my true self in an instant. We have to really take that time to expand our capacity to feel safe enough to do that with reconnecting to self. So as Kat was saying, because it is a deeply ingrained coping strategy and the roots are, are so much more in how we view ourselves. So just noticing when we do those things, and and maybe who are particular people that might be triggering that response and what's familiar around those people and how they might make us feel. Journaling can also be another really helpful tool, but yeah, I guess really reconnecting with self, you know, as a child, if you've learned to trade parts of self for attachment needs, maybe you have switched off your attachment needs or switched off your emotions in order to feel accepted, validated, worthy, etc. Uh, we can experience that real disconnect from self. And when we feel disconnected from self, it's difficult to know what we feel or what we need. So sometimes really going back to that affect attunement, the things that we didn't get in childhood, if there's been a mismatch in attunement or responsiveness or inconsistency, we don't develop the capacity to feel known, seen, heard. There can be a sense of being misunderstood or not seen, having a misunderstanding of being worthy of care and making sense of there must be something wrong with me. And again, that's where that perfectionism can really creep in to fix the wrongness within self. I must be perfect. Uh, So developing that attunement through body work, sometimes practices like mindfulness and interoception, processes where the nervous system is able to have space to integrate Uh, signals from the body to emotional states so essentially tapping into what is feelable monitoring those visceral and physiological sensations that are connected to emotional states that we may have been switched off from so really connecting you to you finding your authentic self being mindful of how we act and behave to gain the acceptance and acknowledgement of others where we might be abandoning our authentic self 
What I think is really important to remember is that you are not broken. Uh, you are a whole person. You have everything within you. Uh, however, at the time you were traumatized, you disconnected from self because that was your body's way of keeping you safe. So we learn to reject self in order to salvage that attachment. And I think reconnecting is a lot about reclaiming your power. Who am I? Owning your voice. This is how I feel. This is who I am. And being able to take that mask off sometimes. Creating safety to see value within self, which is scary. And when we haven't been able to do that or we haven't felt worthy of doing that. I think also self-compassion is a huge one. So self-compassion keeps us safer than perfectionism and people-pleasing can. I think sometimes they tend to become maladaptive. So self-compassion is like a brain exercise. The more we practice self-compassion, the stronger our brain gets and the stronger we get, the more we are able to step into our authenticity and compassion then becomes a superpower. You know, it's that self-kindness, reframing from harsh criticism. It's allowing that shame and guilt to surpass because we recognize and sit with what we're feeling and allow it to be there without ignoring or pushing it away. So it might even be as simple as uh, behavioral self-compassion, noticing that my body needs to move or it needs a walk and nourishing that with uh, gentle movement without, without coming from the perspective of, oh, I need to go for a massive run because I ate pizza last night and I need to burn off as many calories as possible. I think self-talk is another huge one. So catching some of that inner critic and automatic uh, self-talk that can pop up and, again, nourishing that negative self-talk with some self-compassion. And it might just be sitting, sitting with ourselves and giving ourselves that unconditional acceptance and love that we didn't get as children so something like I know that was a really difficult awful challenging thought to have or that felt really yucky to think that of myself and sitting and allowing that to move through to to physiologically feel safe with that thought rather than oh I'm not going to have that thought and quickly trying to move it away can be helpful. Mm, really great tips, Ames. Love that. I think a lot of inner work and body work is really, really helpful in delving into people pleasing. Also, just some practical strategies if you are someone who would like some support around this, um, but maybe can't go to therapy or, you know, maybe doesn't have the space to explore those you know, really going back to your attachment needs and core beliefs. Something that can also be helpful is looking at a concept of time versus capacity when you're asked to do something or when you have an urge to do something to please somebody else you're right I think as Ames was saying pausing really acknowledging and understanding what comes up for you and letting that kind of sit there and non-judgmentally accept that I think when you do have that pause, you have also a moment to consider whether this is possible for you to do, understanding that you are so worthy of time for yourself and self-care and you always have a choice. You don't have to say yes. You can also say no. So looking at time versus capacity. So do I have the time to do this? Yeah, there's an hour in my week that I could do this thing that I want to do or this person's asked me to do, but do I have the emotional capacity to do so okay time and capacity are two very very different things so really understanding that 
if you have the time doesn't always necessarily mean you have the capacity to do so. So in that pause, when you have a request, really, really exploring that idea of time versus capacity. Also, when you say yes to someone or when you say yes to completing a task or a request for approval or for whatever needs that it meets for you, you may say no to yourself. Saying yes to someone else usually may result in you saying no to yourself or something that you'd like to do or time on your own or time with your partner or your friends. So I think really really delving into this idea of the guilt that you have around saying no and allowing that, as Aim said, sitting in that guilt because the, the more you can sit in this guilt and feel that discomfort with saying no, the easier it will be to say no or to have some firmer or softer boundaries. I think people-pleasing is the avoidance of guilt, right? It's the avoidance of this yucky feeling as Ames was talking about. So actually becoming acquainted with guilt or what are, whatever feelings might come up for you, anxiety, doesn't make it seem as overwhelming or unsafe. So those could be some practical strategies. Also, people can't read your mind. If you say yes to something, people genuinely think that you have the capacity to do so. And just remember that you've taught them that you have this capacity. So yes, resentment is normal, but what it also does is it allows people to treat you a certain way. The more you say yes, the more people have this assumption that you can and will keep doing this behavior or something for them. You learn to say no or set some softer or firmer boundaries. People may initially feel shocked or a little bit surprised and will maybe keep pushing their previous expectations on you. But eventually when you learn to say no, people will learn to treat you in that way that you treat yourself. So I think just be really mindful of that resentment and, and frustration that builds. It's very valid, but people aren't mind readers. So you will need to set boundaries to communicate that this is how you need to be treated. I think those are some really great practical tips. Uh, I also think in relationship, people pleasing and perfectionism can be quite difficult. And, and we'll get into a little bit of perfectionism soon. Um, I'm very aware that we've kind of veered off into people pleasing a little, a little bit more than perfectionism. However, maybe we'll need to do this as a separate episode. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we'll, we'll, we'll split this up. A little bit more on perfectionism as a, <laughs> a separate app. But I think in relationship too, sometimes having that anxious, ambivalent attachment style can mean that we often do feel quite angry and resentful of our partner not being able to meet our needs because it feels like hurtful rejection or abandonment you know they, they haven't done this or they haven't appreciated this because they don't love me so they're going to leave me or you know taking those things as a sign uh, that our partner doesn't love us mm -hmm. enough or that we're not worthy of their love because of that internal working model because that's familiar one really important question to ask or, or a reflection that can be helpful if this comes up in relationship, is that all of these people-pleasing behaviours that we might do to feel a sense of acceptance and approval and validation that we are loved, our partner hasn't asked us to do any of these things, okay? Mm. That can be a really insightful reminder that they, they actually haven't asked me to do any of the things that you might be you know, exerting so much energy and time to do to, to make them happy, to please them uh, in, in order to feel something within ourselves that feels missing. So just taking a step back and, and having that reminder 
and also asking yourself, what is making me do these things that, that sometimes I resent doing? Maybe what are some common triggers, you know, not feeling good enough, fear of failure? What is really activating these responses? What do I feel when I'm going through this? Is it anxious, stressed, nervous energy, that on-edge feeling? What difficulties do I experience? Burnout, shame, self-sabotage. I, I think one aim here that is important for both people-pleasing and perfectionism is the idea of good enough is good enough. No one person is going to be able to meet all of our needs and we are not going to be able to meet all the needs for someone else. We simply can't. So really accepting that good enough is good enough is an important one. Finding ways to meet our own needs where we can. So if it is that, you know, we're needing reassurance, self-validation, reassuring ourselves that our worth is more than enough. Yeah, reassuring yourself that you are so worthy of the love and kindness that you give to others. I guess having tangible ways that you can give yourself what you're needing, maybe it is practicing the opposite action for what you're doing to yourself when you are suppressing or denying and giving to others, flip that on its head. Yeah, usually when we are feeling really anxious and really insecure and we're, you know, overly overcompensating to others, that's when our self is screaming out. Yeah, that's when usually we are, you know, at our most vulnerable and really needing to connect to self. So again, having that awareness around that is is really important. It might even be self-soothing techniques, like wrapping ourselves up in a blanket, maybe with a, a warm drink and watching uh, one of our favorite movies just to give us that sense of comfort and soothing. It might be going back to our body, going back to our breath as a practical way to regulate our nervous system. What will you say to yourself to soothe? It might be something like, I don't need to be perfect. Uh, good enough is good enough. It might be that I wholeheartedly accept myself. Uh, this might feel difficult right now, but, but I am safe to sit here. Whatever feels right for you, but sometimes giving ourselves those little moments of, of connection and soothing and, and giving to self can be actually quite powerful. And we, the more we practice, the better we get at that too. And you may find this hard because it's unfamiliar, it's foreign. But the, again, the more we try, the more we expand our capacity too. So remembering that we're learning new strategies for meeting our own needs that we've previously been unconscious of. And another reason why I think the idea of good enough is good enough uh, is oftentimes becoming a helper or needed is a substitute for not feeling loved internally so every time you're called upon for a message it, it's almost like an opportunity to prove or validate that I'm good enough or I matter so being a workaholic or being a perfectionist again is that adaptive coping strategy and I think taking a step back where we can to pause again and what is driving this sense of of not being wanted or not being good enough is another important you know reflection if we have an unconscious belief that we are not lovable, we compensate because we have a deep need as humans to feel loved. We seek signs of love from the outside and this is where these strategies develop. So this is not your fault or a flaw within you. 
you know, our biggest need as children is attachment. It's how we survive. So you learn that your behavior was more important than you were. So you adjust yourself to be good and you shut down your emotional needs or emotionally withdraw. Because again, as we've said, it hasn't felt safe. So the, the link between perfection and people-pleasing, we learn essentially that love is conditional as a child. To earn love, you had to please people based on how you behave. Something in you, though, knows that what is loved is your behaviour. So it doesn't feel the lack, uh, I guess, of, of emptiness or uh, that wound of not having that attachment need met. But it's adaptive because it helps you function in the world. How you adapted to not being valued as a child is that you isolated self and ignored needs to survive. And again, that really shows up uh, as adults in work, in relationship, because we still sometimes often people, uh, clients that I work with will, will describe this feeling as feeling stuck or empty or just feeling like something is, is quite wrong, but they, they can't put their finger on it. So I think absolutely next uh, episode when we go into perfectionism, I think really important to identify that link between an underlying sense of conditional love or conditional worth. And I guess one little reflection question, uh, again, kind of finishing up this episode, is what parts of myself am I trading? What, what, what parts of my authenticity do I trade uh, to seek acceptance, validation, uh, approval? And when was the last time I said no? Mm-hmm. Mm, great reflection. All right, guys, we will see you next episode for perfectionism. As always, we run over time, so we might split this up into part one and part two. Hope this was helpful. Obviously, as always, if you do notice any of these things come up for you, or if you do align with any of these behavior traits we've spoken about when discussing people pleasing or even perfectionism, therapy is a really wonderful space to explore this. It's a really safe space for you to explore how to work through this, understand why it has come up for you. And yeah, exploring tips on and strategies on how to help and work through people pleasing. I think people pleasing has a really detrimental effect on mental health and I think well psychological and physical well-being even. So it's really important that if you do identify with these that you do seek some support around it or at least do some of your own reflection and research into people-pleasing because it really can have some negative mm. impacts, people-pleasing on so many parts of you. So make sure you do seek out that support. We will see you next time for Perfectionism Aims. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank Thank you you. for your beautiful words of wisdom as always. Your voice is always so soothing and calming. As is yours. But we will see you guys next episode for part two of Perfectionism. I did just want to add one sneaky little thing. Sorry. If you do have any questions on perfectionism or you do have any other questions on people-pleasing, please feel free to DM us at the Psychology Sisters or at the Psych Collaborative on Instagram. Instagram. We love hearing from you. We really value your questions and your feedback, your requests. A lot of you have some beautiful, insightful questions. And we also like giving 
new content um, that you are really interested in. So obviously Kat and I could talk for days and days and (laughs) not come up for air. So yeah, if there is something specific that you are wondering about, uh, either perfectionism or people-pleasing, we are more than happy to pop that in the next episode. So please don't be shy. We answer questions anonymously and we de-identify you. So no question is, uh, I guess, too strange or silly there's no such thing as a silly question and we'd love hearing from you so please don't be shy reach out if you are feeling i guess curious about anything that we've spoken about today mm, absolutely until next all time right, guys. <laughs> adios amigo adios. <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks guys bye, bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you're not already, please follow us on Instagram at The Psychology Sisters. We are also now providing online psychological sessions. For more information, please follow us at The Psych Collaborative. See you next time.